Luck ain't planning. I don't think I've ever told you all this, but Daddy loved birds. Ravens, specifically. As an adult, he didn't like to keep him as pets, staying true to his feelings on caring for animals after a full day of caring for animals. But when he was a kid, he actually domesticated one. I wanted to name him Edgar for obvious reasons, but your Uncle Zeus said that was stupid. We live 40 minutes north of Richmond, he said. You might as well name him Raven if you're going to name him that. Fine, what would you name him? Zeus didn't even hesitate. Bertram? Bertram? What's Bertram mean? It's German for raven. I'm not sure what I liked about that thread of logic the most, the obvious contradiction or the confidence with which it was stated. Either way, Bertram sounded better than Edgar, so that's what I named him. Daddy always was a bit of a weirdo. I think he liked the name as much as he liked watching the expression on people's faces when they asked, Hey, what's your raven's name? Bertram. Bertram? What's that mean? Raven. You named your raven Raven? Yeah. Makes it easier for me to remember what he is. Daddy trained Bertram to talk, fetch, and deliver messages. He even took it to competitions up and down the East Coast. Won a few badges. He kept them in a display frame he hung up in Maurice. Best elocution, fastest delivery time, highest soarer. Bertram was a grade A raven, Daddy used to say. You ever miss him, Daddy? God, no. Damn bird lived five years longer than he was supposed to. We only competed for three years when he was younger. Then he got kind of mean. Wouldn't stay in a cage, so I kept him in the barn. Used to swoop down on me and peck at my head. I wanted to shoot him, but Nana wouldn't let me. Probably the best decision I ever made. One day, Zeus drank some bad well water and took the vomiting. He was dangling on the drop edge of yonder. But the world still revolved, and the family had to eat, so Nana sent Daddy out to draw some water from the stream that ran behind the house. Daddy loved to play in that stream, caught crawdads and frogs, splashed through its shallow depths jump from rock to rock. It was there where he came to understand the inner workings of the natural world, how the water flowed, how the creatures ate. It was something he passed down to me, and when it was my turn to play there, I used to lie on the sandy banks and imagine him as a boy doing the same thing, staring up at the sun-dappled canopy, listening to the hushing wind and the buzzing insects and the tweeting birds. He had to be, oh, maybe ten when it happened. Usually he and Zeus played together, Zeus being only two years younger and a boy. Daddy's sisters were in their teens and had no interest in fishing for crawdads and rolling around in the mud. But, of course, Zeus was busily plying his illness in his room, working Nana half to death changing sheets and emptying basins. So that left Daddy to do the job on his own, taking Bertram along for company. The stream never wandered and it never winnowed, so you can imagine his surprise when he ambled out there, Bertram on his shoulder and a bucket in his hand, to find only a dry bed littered with dead mud bugs and flopping fish. Manda... I was as near to a state of shock as I'd ever been, he said. That stream was as regular as the sun. There was a little pool, and I picked up a couple of fish and put them in it. Not that it would help, but I did what I could. He and Bertram followed the bed upstream, him by foot and Bertram by air. All sorts of treasures littered the bed. Rusty coins and arrowheads, back frames and hubcaps. At one turn, he saw what looked like the white bones of something sticking out of the mud. Around another, he found a clutch of nudie magazines. 
He followed the bed for at least a half a mile before he found out what happened. A tree had fallen across the stream and was blocking the water. It wasn't no regular tree, neither. The wood surrounding our farm was filled with huge oaks, and this was one of the biggest. He hopped up on the bank to see the damage and hadn't taken but two steps before he froze in his tracks. I walked into the middle of the nest of snakes. Copperheads. They didn't see me at first, but I knew enough about them not to even think about making any sudden movements. I was about to back away when one of them sensed my presence and uncoiled, hissing. I had just enough time to think, good lord, when it struck. And I swear to God, Manda, everything I'm about to tell you is the truth. Out of nowhere, Bertram came screaming down through the air and snapped that snake up in its beak before it could even bite me. Nabbed it by the head and just flew off. That just about knocked my socks off. Well, that's planning an effort right there, Daddy, I said. You trained that bird good. Daddy laughed. Planning an effort had nothing to do with Amanda. I got lucky. And luck ain't planning. You know who else wasn't lucky? Ray. I know I haven't talked about him so far, but to be honest, after a couple of weeks in his company, I found that I did not like Ray very much. I didn't like him very much at all. He seemed like an all right guy at first, but he had a tendency to ignore me, and I think it was because I was a girl. He took to ordering me around like the farm was his, and I took to avoiding him as much as I could. The man might have been military, but he didn't have no country training. Let me explain. March came in like a lamb, which was truly a surprise after all that grousing old man Winter did a few weeks earlier. He was a tenacious old coot, though, and held on to the lamb with them hard scrabble nails, trying to keep Mother Earth from tilting back toward the sun by sheer force. But Mother Earth liked to indulge her children, and eventually she had enough of his attitude and sent him packing. Then, as if to make up for it, she let the sun warm the land, melting the snow and filling the streams. It felt as though the world could breathe again, and with those first tentative breaths, the wildlife returned. We couldn't believe it. It was our common belief that the hive had destroyed nearly everything it could get its slimy tentacles on the fall before, insect and reptile and bird and beast alike from the great black bear to the lowliest worm. Wiped them out faster than any disaster in history, man-made or natural. But we were wrong. First came the birds, whole flocks of them. Geese and ducks and sparrows and hawks and ruffs and eagles and cardinals. Then we saw deer, whole families, bucks and does and fawns. Maggie May just about lost her mind, and it took all we could take trying to keep her from running off all tail and tongue, half catawampus after every last living thing that dared set foot on or near our property. Of course, with the warmer weather came the fear of the hives coming back to life. But I thought we might have a few more weeks. And how do you know this? Ray asked. I tell you what. I never had a brother to irritate the hell out of me just by breathing, but Ray had become just about as close to one as I'd ever get. I don't know, I said. It's just a feeling. Just a feeling. Feelings aren't going to save us when those things wake. Fine, it's more than a feeling. The hives froze up with the frost, right? So? It's nearly 60 outside. Well, if you ain't the most hard... Yeah, it's 60 degrees in the air, but the fields are still frozen. Go on out and try to dig you a hole. See how long it takes to break off the handle. Timmy Carter stifled a snicker, and Ray shot a one-eyed glare at him. He couldn't really argue about that, but instead of admitting he was wrong, he sputtered something about, We'll see, and walked off, his shoulders all knotted up and black clouds hanging over his scarred head. What's gotten into him? I asked Timmy Carter. He's angry. What about? I don't know. Something. I didn't dwell on it. I was too busy hunting deer to care. I would have thought I was a bona fide angel the way everybody carried on when I brought back the first one. It was a three-point buck. Not too big, but not too small, neither. 
I cleaned and butchered it myself out back. And when I cooked the first steaks, well, after three weeks of pasta and red sauce, I guess I understand the rapture they all felt. In all the excitement about the deer, I forgot to warn everybody about the well. I'm not saying I'm taking responsibility for what happened, but I don't necessarily feel good about it neither. Those of you who have well water know the struggle. Yeah, you don't have to pay the county for something that should come to you for free, but you also have to be extra careful about your source of hydration. Back in the Civil War days, people dug their wells shallow, like 40 feet shallow, and that wasn't good for nobody. Shallow wells go dry easier for one, but they're also susceptible to collapse and poisoning. I don't think I ever knew anybody who purposely poisoned a well or anybody who'd had their well purposely poisoned, but I knew plenty of wells that ended up that way. Floods can do it. So can letting your cows flop too close to it or digging an outhouse in the path of the source. As long as I could remember, we used the well that Daddy dug himself. Thing was over 180 feet deep. Tasted clean and clear. Best water I ever had. But even that one turned weird on occasion, and every now and then the stuff that came out of the pipe was red-brown and smelled like sulfur. We didn't drink the water then, had to boil some from the stream. But there was two other wells on the property, one that had been dug over 150 years before and had since collapsed, and another that had been dug in the 1950s and was as corrupt as a senator. It sat at the bottom of a hill behind our house, and for some reason Daddy never filled it in. I think maybe he liked the way it looked down there, with the crumbling stone housing topped by an antique roof. It did look kind of homey, I'll give him that. Gave the property an old-timey feel that he appreciated. Anytime someone suggested he tear it down, he'd say, people look at that well and barns and the old whitewashed house and they don't think marijuana. They think Thanksgiving and apple pie, the Second Amendment and old glory. Whether or not that's true, he never got busted. Gotta give him credit for that. As for me, he didn't worry one bit about that old well. I might have been a hard-headed tomboy, but I wasn't stupid. That well was a catch-all for all kinds of snakes and birds and other unfortunates and I'd even seen Daddy dump stuff in it on occasion. So the last thing I wanted to do was accidentally fall 40 feet into a polluted pit of trash, reptiles, and animal carcasses. But Ray didn't know this, and neither did anybody else who'd come to live on the farm. It was March 5th, and we were gathered in the kitchen, five of us, including Timmy Carter, Ray, and me. It was a typical Virginia late winter. Some days the temperature rose to the low 50s, some days it stuck hard and near freezing. Maggie May lay at my feet, enjoying the heat of the open wood stove. Timmy Carter and I had just come back from a week of range in the countryside, checking for hives or any stray max. By all accounts, the range was a successful one. The burned husks of the hives we found from the fall before decayed over the winter, and the pyres of mac corpses were nothing but black spots. And sure, it was muddy and cold, but Timmy Carter and I returned much heartened. Ray filled our cups with water from a pitcher. Tastes a little funny, he said, taking a deep gulp. The water? I asked. Is it coming out orange? It did. Then it shut down all the way. We've been using the other well. I put my cup down on the table with a thock. What other well? The one at the bottom of the hill. Ray started to take another drink, and I knocked that cup out of his hand, splattering everybody at the table. Amanda, what the hell? Everybody put your cups down. They all looked at me like I was crazy. Do it! Now! Ray put his hand on my shoulder. Amanda, can you explain what's going on? I, I should have told you. Damn! Of course you didn't know. Didn't know what? How long have you been drinking that? Since last night. Why? I'm surprised you're not sick yet. I mean, that well's bad. Always has been. Hell, right? Daddy used to dump stuff in there. His face went just about as pale as the rain. Oh, shit. Yeah, no kidding. I started to gather up my backpack. Maggie Mae hopped to her feet, tongue lolling. You give this to her? Ray was staring at the table, shocked. 
What? No, I'm trying to think who's been drinking this. Well, you'll know pretty fast. First comes the fever, then the vomiting. Where are you going? We're going to need some water. I I thought you said that we use the stream when the well stops working. We boil it. Well, we need medicine, penicillin, antibiotics. First things first, Ray. Timmy Carter? Timmy Carter was already on his feet. I'll get people to help. I knew what he was really thinking about. There was a new girl he'd taken a shine to, Francis or Francine or something. I hadn't seen much of her or gotten to know her very well. She was a cute little thing. Timmy Carter had been away for a whole week, so I guess he had him some catching up to do. He bounced away from that table like his legs were on springs. Ray, on the other hand, looked like he was about to hyperventilate. This is my fault. I I made everyone sick. Well, maybe so, but sitting around feeling bad about it ain't going to solve the problem. What do I do? I was already halfway out the door, Maggie Mae on my heels. She thought we were going for a hike. I don't know. Help? Then I left. The stream ran through the woods at the bottom of the hill about a quarter mile from the house. Maggie Mae and I banked around the gate and walked along the wall, setting a fast clip, eager to leave the chaos that was about to set in behind. To be honest, I kind of enjoyed getting away from the farm, emergency or not. Don't get me wrong, I love that place. It was and always will be my home. But I'd lived there forever, and I was getting to the time in my life when I needed to be not there anymore. And on top of that, it reminded me too much of Daddy. Everywhere I looked, he put his stamp on something. Maurice, his guns, the couch where I found him. I was about a foot away from the woods when Maggie Mae started barking and baring her teeth. I felt all dizzy all of a sudden, like something in my inner ear went haywire and showed me off balance. At the same time, I felt an electric current run through my body, starting around my pelvis and running up through my spine, shooting out my arms and into my fingertips. Maggie Mae kept barking and barking, and I had to struggle to focus, to not concentrate on the sensation, because as strange and as scary as it felt, I can't lie, it felt good. Felt real good. It reminded me of the first time I kissed a boy, a sexy zing that hummed through all my nerves. I managed to draw my sidearm and... Whoever or whatever it was stepped out from behind the tree, and I let out a sigh of relief. It was the girl, the banshee. She stood there, plain-faced and quiet, like she wanted to say something but couldn't. Maggie May, when she realized who it was, wagged her tail and trotted up to lick her hand. That weird zing slowly disappeared, and I lowered my gun. Holy moly, girl, you can't just scare people like that. Want to come. You want to come with me? She nodded. Well, I'm just getting some water. What want to come? Well, I guess it'll do you some good. About time you got out of that house. I meant that. She'd been holed up in Daddy's room ever since we rescued each other out in that blizzard two months before. And that kind of isolation don't do nobody no good. I will say this. That girl was beautiful. Some people just have it. Evenly proportioned features, thick hair, full lips. That was her. In the late winter sun, she looked hale and hearty, even if she was still a little pale. On anybody else, it would have looked spooky, but it suited her.
We didn't speak as we walked, which I liked. It's why me and Timmy Carter got along so well. He shut up, and I let him shut up. We'd just about reached the stream when I noticed something was wrong. I couldn't put my finger on it exactly. Something about the woods was different. I didn't figure it out until we reached the water, or where the water used to be, because there wasn't any water anymore. The stream was dry. Maggie Mae was jumping around in the bed, chomping on some flopping fish and tossing them up in the air, snorkeling and snuffling and having herself a grand old time. She barked when she seen us. Yeah, Maggie Mae, I murmured. Water? The girl asked. I hopped into the bed, squatted down, and put my hand on the bottom. The sand was still wet. Must have just happened. Trees. Yeah. Daddy said this happened before. Tree fell in. No. Trees. Sure enough, it was blocked. This time, not by a single tree, but by several. And rocks, and dirt, and leaves, like the world's most industrious beavers had scoped the place out, took a meeting, and said, Yep, this is the spot. I started over toward it to see what was going on when the girl said, No. Why not? Don't. Not safe. After everything I've been through, you'd have thought that maybe I'd listened to someone for once. Maybe I should have. Maybe for once in my life, I should have considered the fact that my first impulse might not always be the best. But unfortunately for me, well, remember that conversation we had a few months back about frontal lobe development in teenagers? Yeah, that. Add to that the chip on my shoulder I have for anybody who tried to tell me what to do? Thanks, Daddy. And there was no way I was not going to investigate that damn damn. And what does she know anyway? She'd been holed up an invalid for over a month. I got about halfway up the side when Maggie Mae started barking, and it startled me, so I slid back a few feet, uncovering something slick and white. I peered at it for a closer look, flicked some dirt off it, dug around the edges a little. Maggie Mae stopped barking, and I thought, good. The old girl was driving me crazy. Hey, girl, I said. Come check this out. I turned around, but the girl was gone. And Maggie Mae. Just up and vanished. Hey, Maggie Mae. I looked around all over but they totally disappeared. You playing tricks on me, girl? I waited a tick, but she didn't reply, and nary a bark was to be heard. Where'd they go? I muttered. Randolph! I recognized that voice. Old and scraggly, reminded me of long hair and black gap teeth. I turned around, and there he was on top of the dam, smiling that ugly smile at me. Otis. Hi there. Amanda, right? I started drawing my sidearm, but he pulled out a rifle so big it might as well have been a cannon. What's that, Otis, a punk gun? You want to find out? You think that's supposed to scare me? Yeah. He aimed it to my right and fired, blowing a hole in a tree along the bank. My pale face must have been all the words he needed. He looked over my shoulder and nodded. You might remember my friend. Somebody spun me around, and there stood Annie O. Her face was still swole from where I knocked her off her horse with Otis's shotgun and one eye was all bunged up, too, and her lip healed cockeyed. Hi there, she said, and then she clocked me in the face. Didn't black out, but it hurt like hell. Like about to knock me cross-eyed. My ears was ringing and my eyes teared up. I fired off a few rounds before she hit me again, and maybe I hit her or maybe I didn't. But when I'd exhausted my clip, there was a pause and a chuckle, and then she ripped my gun out of my hand. And then she kicked me in the ribs. And then she kicked me in the ribs again. I'm pretty sure she broke at least one. That's enough, Annie-o, Otis said. Hangnail wants her alive. Oh, she'll be alive, she said, and kicked me in the kidneys this time. Enough. 
Here's the thing about riding in the payload of a pickup truck with broken ribs. It don't feel good. I'm pretty sure Annie O was driving because that truck hit as many hard turns and potholes as possible. I rolled around in the back like a ping pong ball. At least at first. After the third time slamming into the wheel well, I braced myself against the cab and the wooden toolbox that had been bolted into the steel. For those of you who are thinking, now why didn't she just open that toolbox up and get her a weapon? Even a screwdriver would have done the job. Well, that toolbox was locked up with a fat old padlock, and between the ribs and the careering around, it wasn't really like I was thinking straight. I did, however, find myself a nice sharp shard of wood, about the size of a penknife, and jammed it down the back of my pants. Maybe I shouldn't have brought a shiv to a gunfight, but it was better than nothing. After a while, the pickup slowed down and stopped, and one of them got out of the cab, and then I heard the sound of a gate opening. The truck moved forward, and the tires crunched on the gravel, and I knew we'd made it to Hangnail's farm. I'll spare you the details of how they got me out of the truck. You can trust me when I say that as much as breaking my ribs hurt, the process of clambering out of that payload and walking into the house was worse. And you'll probably not be surprised to know that Annie O and Otis were none too kind about it neither. They dragged me through the house and into a hallway with stuffed heads mounted on the wood panel walls. Deer, bears, antelope, moose. Antique guns were hanging farther down where the hallway turned into a set of stairs. They carried me down by my armpits, my toes barely scraping each step, finally stopping at a set of double doors. You knock, Otis said. Annie O grunted and shook her head. You scared? No, but it's your turn. Fine. She was about to do it when the lock clicked and the door swung slowly open, revealing a long, deep room with a thick oak table in the middle of it. A fire crackled in the fireplace in the back despite the warm weather, and a figure in black sat with his back to it. I couldn't see anything but greasy hair on a hung head. Must have been Hangnail. Mr. Hangnail, sir? Annie O said. Hangnail didn't move, and she and Otis shared a nervous look. Let's bring her in, Annie O said. Otis nodded. I kept my eyes on Hangnail as they dragged me over to a chair on his right and shoved me down into it. If any of you ever had broken ribs and were forced to sit, you know how much that must have hurt. I sucked in a gasp and tried to blink away the stars. Then they hovered there behind me, nervous as two polecats. Now that I was closer, I could see Hangnail's mouth and nose underneath all that hair. He was smiling, or grimacing, I couldn't tell which. And he was sweaty and sneering and all hunched over with his hands resting palms down on the table. And sure enough, he looked like he was suffering his namesake. I squinted at him, trying to see the eyes behind that hair. And then I knew. I knew who he was. Gomez Gomez? I said. That's right. Gomez Gomez. Gomer's son. The last time I saw him, he was crumpled over on the ground after I kicked him in the gonads, his face red, the tendons in his neck sticking out. Or maybe that was the high reality, Gomez. Did it really matter? I was there. He was there. Everything I felt, my mama's hand on my forehead, the pain of the rocks biting into my feet as I ran across town, was real. And if it was real for me, then it was real for him. Well, good. Gomez was a jerk before he died and joined the hive. Now he was a jerk and a traitor. And a weirdo, too. Because did he say anything when he saw me? Did he make an effort to recognize me? Did he smile or snarl or do anything more than hang his head like a whip puppy, gritting his teeth, lips pulled back so I could see his gums? Well, I'll let you figure that one out. Otis cleared his throat. Sir? Uh, Mr. Hangnail, sir? Gomez's eyes snapped on him. Here she is, sir. We brought her to you just like you asked. 
all in one piece. Gomez continued to stare at him without saying a thing. I craned my neck back to look at Otis, trying to gauge his reaction. Strangely enough, he looked like he was listening to something. Then I felt it again, the dizziness, just like before with the girl. Only this time I heard a crackling static, like a radio signal was trying to punch through my brain. A winding feedback whine that shot into my ear and made my head hurt. This wasn't some throbbing ache from getting knocked in the head. This was like someone was pushing a guitar string into my ear. Then through it all came a voice, distant and thin at first, then gradually fuller and fuller. I finally caught the edge of a word right in the middle of a sentence. Did I not tell you to bring her to me undamaged? Gomez's mouth hadn't twitched an inch. Otis cleared his throat again. <clears> throat> uh, yes, sir. Yes, sir, you did. But see, uh, Annie O, don't blame it on me. I told you not to touch her. I told you to leave her a... Gomez blinked hard and a gash appeared in Otis's face, stretching across from his cheekbone to his chin. A jagged, ugly gulch. Please, Otis, do not lie to me. Do not play games. Take responsibility for your behavior. But... Gomez blinked again and another gash formed on Otis's other cheek. Annie Gomez asked. Do you care to say anything? No, no, sir. There will be repercussions for this insolence. I will attend to you both later. Leave us for now. Sir, if I may. Gomez blinked and the two were sent backward out of the room, their feet dragging on the hardwood, flying one by one out the door, which slammed shut behind him. He turned his eyes on me and I tried to sit up straighter. I might have had my ribs cracked, but there wasn't no way I was going to let a little weasel like Gomez Gomez get the best of me. Hangnail, huh? Sounds about right. Mock me if you must, Amanda Majet, but... Oh, I will! What's the deal with your hair? I know we're low on food and such, but there's still plenty of shampoo and conditioner to be looted. He blinked hard, and this time the gash hit my lips. Felt like getting cut with a cinder block. It took me a few minutes to recover, but when I did, I said, Neat trick, Gomez. That all you got? Better than what you have. I would have smiled, but even the short sentence I'd just managed to get out made me sick with pain. I swallowed it back along with my pride and some blood. What's the matter, Amanda? Can't think of anything sharp to say to me? The dizziness crept up inside again, tickling the back of my throat, warm in my belly and below. Just a hint, and then it was gone. I spit blood on the table. Why? I asked. Why what? The little snake. The little snake was going to make me say it, wasn't he? Make this as painful as possible, and hard, too. Turns out that lip cuts are just as bad as scalp cuts. They bleed and bleed and bleed. Difficult to make any sense when you're sputtering blood. What do you want, Gomez? Do you mean what do I want from you? Your life, of course. You really think so? Yes. Not before I torture you first, but it's going to happen. Here's the thing about people. We're all the main characters in our own stories, and the main character don't die. If we get in a predicament, we fight or fox our way out of it. If we need saving, we get saved. But that ain't the way the world really works. In the real world, everybody dies. Sitting there across from Gomez Gomez after he threatened to kill me, I should have been freaking out for that very reason. I believed him. I believed he was going to do it. I wasn't in any position to deny him his intentions neither, but somehow... I felt cool, calm, collected. I don't know why. I wasn't trying to be conceited or nothing. Next thing I knew, that weird dizziness hit me again, hit me full on all over my body, and I thought, she's here, the girl. She'd come to save me. 
Gomez Gomez must have felt it too because his eyes went spastic. Then the door exploded inward, sending shards of wood flying through the air. One of them struck Gomez right in the shoulder so hard that he fell backward. Then she was there, the girl, standing in the broken door frame. She stepped into the room like a short, pale, scraggly-haired superhero, followed close behind by a barking Maggie May. Gomez rose up from the ground, stiff as a board like he was being pulled on by wires. He blinked, and all the shards shot back at the girl, sticking in her arms and legs and torso. Maggie May attacked him, biting his leg and whipping her head back and forth. Gomez blinked and she flew off, hitting the wall with a whelp. The girl was suddenly next to me, bleeding from all her wounds and a little unsteady on her feet. She reached her hand out and I took it, and a surge of energy welled up inside my body. Never felt nothing like it in my life. It filled me top to toe, heaped me up like a reactor. But it didn't hurt. It felt good. Like virtue. Like righteousness. And it surrounded my cracked ribs and soothed them and filled my aching head and soothed it too. And once that was done, I felt the energy build and build until I couldn't control it no more. It poured out of my eyes and my mouth, shooting green beams of power that hit Gomez Gomez in the chest and stomach and head. He turned white hot as it consumed him, and his arms and legs stiffened, and he formed an X as the power lifted him off the ground. Head flung back, hair burning, mouth wide open. The energy burned in from his fingers and toes to the core of his being, and he disappeared into the light and crumbled into dust. Then he was gone. Nothing more than a pile of ashes on the floor. We found Otis and Annie O lying in a pool of blood by the front door. Did you do that? I asked the girl. The girl stared at them but didn't respond. I had to shoo Maggie May away from the blood. She was a little stiff as we walked out of the house, limping a little on her front leg, but otherwise she seemed okay. Otis's pickup truck was sitting in the driveway. I had to go back and fish his keys out of his pocket. We drove back to the farm in silence, Maggie May sitting between me and the girl as a buffer. I don't know what happened between us back there. But as awesome as it was, it scared the hell out of me. There was a lot to unpack, but at the moment, I was too tired to even think about anything other than getting home. It was dark by the time we pulled up to the gate, and that's when I remembered how the whole thing got started in the first place. Crap, I said. The water. W- water Yeah, for Ray. And anybody else who gets sick. Damn. I was about to get out and open the gate when it rolled aside. The new girl, Francine, Franny, whatever her name was, she opened it. I drove in, giving her a wave as we passed. She didn't wave back. We're going to have to go out and tow the whole bunch back from the stream, and I stopped talking. Timmy Carter was in the headlights, standing over two mounds of dirt in the front yard. He was holding the shovel. For what? The girl asked. I cut the engine and turned off the lights. Then I leaned back, staring out the windshield, seeing everything and nothing at the same time. Nothing, I said. Never mind.
Hey, hey, thank you for tuning in to the Mad Tales podcast. I hope you enjoyed this week's chapter. If you cannot wait until next week to finish the story, you can always buy it in ebook and paperback form from Amazon.com, or you can buy it directly from me, both in ebook and in paperback, a signed paperback nonetheless, uh, from my website, www.jamesnoll.net. That's www.jamesnoll.net. And if you would love to support me on Patreon, I would love you to support me on Patreon. I'm offering all kinds of cool extras, including access to bonus material, uh, the ebooks released one week at a time, the chapter at a time, uh, customized short stories. And if I can build enough of a following, I want to film a live action version of Make the Hive Great Again, one of my favorite chapters from the Hive. It's uh, at the end of the first season. It's the very last chapter of the, of the first season. That would be an awesome thing to do. So if you want to visit my Patreon page, it's www.patreon.com slash madtails. That would be fantastic. And I will see you guys next week.